0: Hey everyone, welcome to B2B Made Simple. I'm Sam Moss, the CEO and co-founder of One Click Agency. On this show, I interview marketing experts from fast-growing B2B SaaS companies, we feature podcast episodes I'm a guest on, and sometimes we throw in a consulting call I've done with another company. Our goal with this show is to equip you and give you the tools you need to be the best marketer you can be. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of B2B Made Simple. Joining me here on the show is Phil Granoff. He's the CEO of New Store. Phil, welcome to the show.
1: Well, Sam, thanks for the promotion. I'm actually the CMO of New Store.
0: What did I, what did I say?
1: You said the CEO?
0: Oh, man. So, totally meant CMO. I even have a note here that says CMO and messed that one up. It's
1: okay. <laughs> My narcissism knows no bounds. <laughs> And it's funny. One of our one of our customers, Outdoor Voices, an um, athleisure apparel company. Um, you know, we run a we run retail software, and they use our software. So, I've walked in a couple times to see how the software is going, and they got it in their head that I was the CEO. And I kind of <laughs> let it roll the first time. I would have gone one too. Then, then it just became awkward to say anything else. <laughs> and I, I've been I've been you know afraid for years that Stefan is going to walk in, who's our C- C- CEO. And find out, like, they're going to say, no, you're not, we've met the CEO. It's not you. And
0: <laughs> who's this not guy? Who's <laughs> this
1: guy? Yeah. Stefan, you may know, is like he's like, you know, considered the, the Bill Gates of Berlin. He's like two-time IPO guy. But wow. Like, that's okay. If you want to
0: confuse me, <laughs> that's that's, just fun. that's funny. All right. Well, Phil Grunoff, the CMO of Newsor, yeah. welcome to the show. Uh, yeah, I've actually never done that before. I mean, all we have are CMOs and VPs and directors of marketing on the show. Never really CEO. So I don't know where that came from. But anyway, I digress. So, to kick us off, um, are you an Apple or an Android guy?
1: I don't think you belong in marketing if you're um, if you're an Android guy. So yeah. Hey, there so we this, go. Got this, <laughs> they, you know, not done. This, I mean, you know, they're all props for the uh, the, the interview. But you know, the <laughs> cool.
0: was, you know, my first computer
1: was yeah, my first computer was an Apple Two Plus. Uh, an actual an Apple II Plus clone, actually. Wow! Wow! Uh, from like the, the 1800s. Yeah.
0: So you've been a part of the Apple train for a while. So same here, not that long, but um, I'm always interested to hear like the funny the funny things about marketers, just kind of break the ice. So we have an Apple guy. You know, there's a the thing: I have come across some people that are Android that are in the marketing world, and maybe they're just frauds. Maybe oh. that's what's going on.
1: I think they just were probably engineers
0: first. And then they realized right. No, one else, no yeah. one else wanted to
1: do the marketing job and they're like, he's creative. He can write a paragraph. So we're gonna make
0: <laughs> yeah, I might have to follow up with him and see if that's, if, if that's what happened. Cause it sounds like certainly the path that could have happened for sure. Um, yeah. Well, Phil, again, thanks for being here, man. This is going to be a fun topic. Uh, you know, when we talked on our prep call, it was fun to kind of get some ideas for this podcast. And one thing I learned is that Mark B2B marketing specifically is not what it used to be, um, plain and simple. And I think a lot of people can agree with that. And the reason is, is because B2B buyers are becoming more and more like consumers. So in your words, what does that mean for us marketers?
1: Well, it's funny. I don't know whether or not B2B marketing has changed so much as we've recognized that this is how our buyers always were. And we sort of became okay with that. I mean, you know, know, if you go back to sort of the 1950s world of, you know, Taylor's scientific management, you know, we had a certain view of what people were like in the workplace. And, you know, now fast forward to now in the world of Zoom, and it's suddenly we realize it's all people who have, you know, are on Zoom calls who have dogs in the background and kids screaming and everything. So I think it's just, it's actually part of a larger trend of people bringing more of themselves to work and us recognizing that that's who you're dealing with. You know, and I think, you know, so in a sense, I think it's always been like this. We've just recognized that it's probably um, uh, a faster way to get to the hearts and minds of folks is to treat them like individuals. You know, and I think also part of it is there was a myth, and I I still think it's a myth, uh, around how uh, B2B uh, buyers buy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, certainly you're, you're selling to a team. Okay, it's always a team. There's six people. Each of them is coming with 20 pieces of data about the decision making. And so we have in our mind that therefore there's this methodical process that's very different than how people make decisions. And it's just really not true. I mean, we got to go through our due diligence. But I I think that the um, the biggest change uh, in B2B marketing is a recognition that. If you're buying something in the in the world of enterprise software, for example, you re, so much depends on that. You know your your career, your job, the effectiveness of your you know uh, of what you want to get done in the company, your reputation. And if you think about it, I think we mentioned it earlier to each other. Do you really want to have a relationship with your breakfast cereal? I I, I don't think so, not really. So all this sort of lifestyle marketing of this fitting into your life and like okay, I kind of get it. And yes, people do complete their self identity a little bit by the things they buy. I mean, you ask me, am I an Apple guy or an Android guy, you know, and it would feel weird to me to do otherwise. Mm-hmm. But when I make a decision to get sort of a piece of marketing software, I am far more emotionally invested in that than I am, you know, these other, these other trappings in the consumer world. So I think it's just, you know, again, a recognition of it's people you're selling to and they're not always rational. They're making choices based on who they want to be and who they want to become. In fact, there's a, an author that's not really widely read right now. Uh, his name is Doug Holt. And he was really formative in my thinking about this. He wrote a book. I'm going to mess up the title. But the, the, the area of, of focus was called consumer culture theory. Mm. And it's thinking about why people make the choices they make when they buy. And a large portion of it is they're completing their self-identity, who they are, right? and if you want to really crack into a B2B sales process, understand how the individuals on those teams making decisions are completing their self-identity. You know, it can be everything from, I'm, I'm a, I'm a numbers guy, you know, or, you know, I'm the visionary guy. Okay. Well then appeal to those different avenues that that person represents.
0: How do you peel back those layers?
1: You know, I think the most important thing is to listen, first of all, foremost, listen to your sales team. All right. The best salespeople are, did you ever watch the show Mindhunter about the mm-hmm. FBI serial killer profilers? Okay, mm-hmm. so. Sounds good though. <laughs> um, yeah, it is good. It's called Mindhunters. It's actually based on, on the guy that really started the, um, the practice in Quantico on behavioral uh, analysis for serial killers. Anyway, um, these uh, profilers are so good you know, they can look at a person, and understand everything about them. And the most effective salespeople, I mean, they're not hunting serial killers, but they're really good profilers. And, yeah. you know, it goes to the first question you ask. I really want to know who they are. You know, I don't want to know generic things like who's the champion, who's the buyer. I mean, I do want to know them, but I want to understand what's making the people tick because the, the sales process is very bespoke. At the, at the bottom end of the funnel, is certainly. You know, it's appealing to these individuals. So I would say rely on your salespeople, you know, and, and make sure they have the tools on how to understand what kind of people there are in the process. You know, there's, um, I'll point to another thing that I read, reread recently. I think it was Bain. And they created this pyramid of the 40 elements of B2B value that you can create as a provider of sort of technology or, or enterprise services. And at the bottom level of this, it's sort of like, okay, you create value for some sort of the basic things, just like the table stakes, right? Um, you wanna match the specifications, you wanna be regulatory compliant, but at the, at the top of the pyramid, and it's worth the, the listeners and, and viewers of this take a look at, there's things like the inspirational value of what you're offering, like you know the social responsibility or the vision you have, but there's a spectrum between the vision kind of people and the people that are sort of at the very functional level. Really good salespeople will know where in that spectrum of value is really playing well. And then you begin to tailor that. You know, and like there are certain industries that tend to have, um, that tend to weigh more in one area than another. I would say probably retail. Um, you know, now social responsibility, for example, is a really good category that like all of retail is following, right? But when you get to an individual level and maybe more things like, I just want a gorgeous experience that make people feel wonderful about the brand. And, um, you know, and so again, it depends on who you're talking to, but use your salespeople. They're better than, than anyone in, in in getting that. And more importantly, find out which of the, which of the personalities are the biggest blockers, Mm -hmm. you know, and again, it's usually not tied to title. It's usually tied to personality.
0: You know, it reminds me of something similar. It sounds like the one I looked at was, uh, maybe BTC marketing or just marketing mm-hmm. in general. I haven't seen the one about the SaaS, but it's, it's a triangle, like you mentioned. And then the bottom layer, they say, uh, you know, table stakes, this is going to save you money. This is going to save you time. This is mm-hmm. going, what everyone says on their website. Right. And the very pinnacle of the triangle was what they described as aspirational identity. Like what does this make you become when you purchase our product or what you do? And in a way B2B software can literally do that and increase your title, your image in a company, um, just because of the decisions that you make. And it can also negatively infect that uh, in fact affect that as well.
1: Yeah. You know, as I as I mentioned, we're retail, we develop retail software for you know lots of D2C brands. And we're the kind of company, again this is not a sales pitch, but we're a real disruptor. You know, we can do it in three months, what uh, legacy companies could do in five years and it's a 10th the cost. The ROI is you know recouped in in a week. And, but those are all fine things to understand. But if I know that the person I'm selling to is more interested in losing their job than they are in pushing the brand forward, we're going to have trouble because it, 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 to to buy new store because we're a disruptor, it appeals very often and more easily to someone who wants to make a a, a stake a claim in the world of retail. And so, um, you know, if they're looking at say a solution from Oracle or a solution from new store, what they choose really says a lot about who they are. Now we know how to get over the fact that someone may be more inclined to, you know, be, you know, to buy Oracle, say the new store mm-hmm. or Aptos or the new store. We can get past that. You know, usually the numbers, you know, make a difference there. Um, but certainly our brand stands for something a little bit different. You know, we are an upstart We're we're changing everything, you know, um, that appeals to certain kind of folks. Right.
0: Um, Do you think that every buyer needs to know the technical details of what you do? Like, should that be, I'm thinking website, even some marketing content, like how deep do we actually go here? So again, it's a
1: very good question, especially in the world of enterprise software. Let me put it this way. They can't know all the technical details of the product before they buy it. It's almost impossible. So, and again, the definition of technical changes by the person, you know, the CIO (laughs) is gonna have a different view. of of what technical means versus, you know, the the CMO, for example. And so I think it really comes down to getting really close to the customer to understand that. I mean, you know, we always say, um, you know, the real buyers, the CEO, it's so cliche. Um, But I think it's right. So honestly, do the CEOs of the companies you sell to really understand all the technical details? No, not at all. So I think the answer is a qualified no, they don't have to, but you better be really clear because you're selling to a team who, who on the team believes they need to understand all the technical details and they get them to the choice. You know, at the end of the day, you know, even if you provided a demo uh, you know, or a proof of concept for three months, still companies don't really have a full understanding of it. You know, they're, they're, they're focusing on the benefits. Was it easy for me to use? Did the general promises you know, uh, you know, you know, play out as, as the, the salespeople said? So I think it's, it's maybe I'll put it this way. It's the most important, least important thing in the process for software. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was, you know, it, 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 there, there are layers you have to pass, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to get trusted, you know, and your performance is going to what's matter.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting is I think it should be, I'm, I'm like talking website here. I think that it should be included on a website deeper for people to do their research because you're going to come across your analytical buyers that are really granular on what you're offering, but yeah. I'm probably going to butcher the phrase, but it's something like uh, people will base their decisions off emotion and then justify it with logic. So yeah. So right. yeah. that's so right. something along those lines, right? So with your marketing, it's like you actually need to talk to those aspirational identities, the things that are really going to push them forward as a person. And then if they want you know. to dig deeper, give them the option to do that. But not everybody's going to.
1: Yeah. You know what I think of one of the confusions is I think many folks in software think that you need to push more technical details into the website. What you really need is, is more of a product marketing mindset to the website because product marketing details and um, is very different than, or they're very different than the technical details. Mm-hmm. So you really want to like, what does the product market in the organization know what's most important? And I'll be totally you know, candid and vulnerable with you. This is a long-running feud between me and my CEO about he wants more technical detail on the site. Mm-hmm. I know. That the maximum amount of time someone's going to spend on the site is around two minutes mm-hmm. for the most engaged buyer. Even if you had all of the technical details there, there's not enough time to read all of them. <laughs> so they're not going to so like, okay, yeah. yeah, they're just simply not going to read it. You know what you really have to have there is in case someone does. Yeah, it's there, but don't let the tail wag the dog. That yeah. is absolutely the tail.
0: And don't put it. First and foremost, like, hey, here is the features of what we offer and the, the deep insights on on what our product actually does. Because one, you're just going to lose people that two minutes that you're talking about is going to yeah. drop to uh maybe 10 seconds if that's the first thing people see. So I'm sure that's right. going to be a, a pretty quick indicator.
1: Yeah. You know, and, he, and marketers can go the other way too far too. I mean, how many websites have you been to? And which you read that first sentence and you have absolutely no idea what it is? It's actually taking the benefit, yeah. Right. It's sort of like We've been taught as marketers, okay, so let's benefit sell, let's value sell. And they keep asking in a good way, you know, well, why is that important? Well, why is that important? And why is that important? The problem is when you ask that too many times, the answer is, is, okay, well, we want to make people happy. Well, okay, you know, it's fine. Well, how about a layer below? So there is some sweet spot between that ultimate benefit. And all the technical details. And that is really the struggle of marketing is to figure out what that level of messaging is. That's that sweet spot that's somewhere between, you know, all the technical details and, and God in heaven. Right. Yeah. You know, which is you know, this wonderful idea.
0: You know, I've actually seen big SaaS companies do that exact same thing where I look at it and I'm like, guys, thankfully I know what you do. But as I'm reading your hero section on your website, or even some marketing materials, it's like, okay, what did, what do they actually do? And it's because they get so close to the product and they get so close to their marketing that they never actually take a step back. And like you said, they just keep going, well, what, what does this do? And because of that, what does this do? And it's like, it's so watered down and so confusing that they actually miss the entire point of like, maybe some people are actually curious to know what you do. And obviously it's so nuanced because some brands, they have such a brand that's built. They can be more, um, I don't know, kind of far off with their description of what they do. I guess people know, but um, I, I personally think it's a mistake.
1: Yeah, I, I do too. So, and look, you have to strike that balance. We've been playing with that for years. And, you know, we're now, I think it's, you know, we're now at our hero messages, amazing shopping experiences everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then right underneath it very quickly, it has the elements of what what makes that. You know, and if you're in a new category, sometimes it's really difficult also, because you can be very technical you know, if I tell you that we deliver the channel as a service, maybe you're going to get that, you know? So again, we, we've always, we, you have to modulate back and forth and see you would get a response. Yeah. Um, but don't fall prey to the critics who are just telling you it's got to be more technical, more technical, more technical, mm-hmm. you know, that's falling into the idea that, that buyers are all non-emotional and they mm-hmm. just need facts. Like I, you know, in, until robots rule, rule the world, you know, it's not going to be just the facts. It's going to be all these things that, you know, the glory of being a human being and decision-making means you got to, you got to appeal to them as a human being. Mm
0: -hmm. Because purchasing a hundred thousand dollar software can be a very nerve wracking thing for maybe someone that's brand new to a CMO role. Maybe they, they've worked their way up from director to VP and now's their chance. I, if, if that was me and I was in their shoes, I would be pretty nervous to make the right decision. And it weighs in who, which vendor are they going to choose?
1: It's not monopoly money. You know, it's it's real money and people are going to look to you. And that being the case, you know, like it, you've got to stand by this stuff. You know, you make these decisions and you've got to stand by it, you know, and, and make the decisions thoughtfully because you are the best. I'll speak to the marketers now. You're the best at marketing in your company.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and, and the worm that eats you is often the desire to get approval from your critics by agreeing with them. Right. Um, so, you know, be a little bit disagreeable, be well-informed, but a, a bit disagreeable.
0: Yeah. So something that you believe is not is that everything meaningful? Yeah, everything not meaningful. Sorry, <laughs> not everything. I'm, I'm reading it back here because you, I, I wrote this down. It was so good. Um, I'll start this over. You believe that not everything meanif- meaningful is measurable. Okay, I got it out. Uh, obviously I butchered that. So can you unpack that because that did with yeah. uh, me quite a bit. Sure. So,
1: so the, the it's actually a paraphrase of a misquote from Albert Einstein. All right, I, and the misquote from Albert Einstein is, "Not everything that counts can be counted, not everything that, be count, that can be counted counts," and which is, I just, it was an easier way for me to remember that. And not everything meaningful is measurable, you know. And what I'm getting at is, marketing is is a discipline that I would say is sort of always under attack in a way, right? And there. In order to help people understand the leaps that we have to make, often and creative leaps, leaps and intuitive leaps, um, everyone wants the data. Show me that works. Prove to me that works. Okay, you know there are lots of things done in every other department in the organization where no one is saying, "Please give me the data that works." Oh, we're gonna we're gonna move from this sort of accounting practice to another accounting practice. Can you demonstrate the ROI and show like do the A/B test on that accounting practice? Like it just doesn't happen. All right. Um, because, and I think in part, the answer to why is there's a fundamental belief that marketing is BS. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you always question the axioms of the people you work with about marketing, but I think there's a, there's a sense of that. And so there's a pressure, most of it well-intended and some of it not to measure as much as you possibly can. Okay. You will never your measure your way into breakthrough ideas. It just, it's, it's, it's almost impossible you know, most of the great ideas on the planet generally seemed like a bad idea prior to them happening, you know. And, uh, you know, there's there's plenty of examples out there. I always I always bring up the one of the minivan. Like, if you had tested the concept of a minivan to a focus group and said, how would you like a giant box that's filled with, a, you know, a McDonald's uh, french fry smell that it's going to, you know, basically neuter anyone who drives it? You know, it's like, it's just, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing about it yet it became like the most the best selling vehicle in the world. And, you know, it kind of, um, you know, now the SUVs have sort of taken that over, but you can't always measure to greatness, right? That's being said, you need to measure a lot. I mean, don't get me wrong, but understand what the value of the measuring is. The, mal- the value of the measuring is to help you get better, not just to prove that marketing should be there in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so, that's again. It's very. You know, I, it almost sounds like I don't want to measure anything. No, but you, you just can't measure everything. And you can measure to death. At some point, there's just no juice in the squeeze, mm-hmm. right? You know, you just like certain things. Like, what is the value to New store? You know, our company that I apparently I'm the CEO of of <laughs> of, 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 a, a, of an elegant, beautiful, seamless experience that makes the Apple designers cry because they wish they could have it, have done it. You really want me to measure that? Mm-hmm. I mean, and even if you could, you're measuring the ability of people to articulate how they think they feel about it, you know? And, and then there's the other thing, which is asking people what they think is, is it, it's often a terrible path to go down. Most people have no idea what they're thinking. and they, they know how to answer questions, but really getting at what they're thinking is really, really, really challenging. At some other point, maybe not this podcast, I can tell you about a, a company that I built that developed a tool to actually get at that but it is a conundrum in research to really get people to think, to, to tell you and express what they're thinking. Because so you have a measurement issue, you have like, is it really measurable in the first place? You've got a combination of maybe distrust and skepticism that is really the purpose of most of your research budget. You got to kind of eliminate all of that and make sure you're doing it for the right reasons, which is to get better and recognize that you're going to have to take risks in, in where the data is not always helping it out.
0: Yeah. So how do you specifically um, approach risk-taking in marketing?
1: Yeah. So see, the first thing is um, the world is filled with people who um, like to play it safe. All right. If you've gone into marketing, I think you're one of those people who probably is willing to handle a little more risk. And in fact, you're often over-rewarded when the risks you take really, really pay off. Um, on the other hand, you are also overly punished for when the risks you take. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult place to be in. So you, th- there's a couple of techniques that I use to ensure that the risks I take are not really, or that at least they're mitigated, they're always gonna be risks. The first thing I do is, and I use LinkedIn for this, we have a new store LinkedIn profile, obviously, and all the corporate stuff goes there and we get tons of uh, interaction. But on my own LinkedIn, I often put in humor risks. I got something in there called the Urban Retail Dictionary, right? And I know for a fact that if I'd run that by my, uh, well, if I'd run it by the board, forget <laughs> it, I'd be done. If I'd run it by um, you know, even my colleagues in the executive team before it started, it would have been like this. It's just, it's not the seriousness with which we need to sell this product. But I put this thing out on my own. I'm like, just let's see what happens. And it took off. You know, mm-hmm. basically, it, it's, you know, it's a little bit like the, the urban dictionary, but it's for terms in, in retail and omni channel. So it was sort of, it flew under the tree line. I could see if it worked. It didn't do any harm. Mm-hmm. Most people that wrote it off as, oh, yeah. Okay. Phil, for God's sakes. There he goes again. <laughs> but, I, but I was very, you know, but it's it's a much, it's not cavalier. Like it's a very, specific effort. The second thing that I do is other than trial balloons. um, Well, I said the first thing is just own it. Confidence sells everything. Okay. So if you're going to take a risk, you own it. Okay. Let the people know that, you know, most people want to agree with you in general, but they want to see that you fundamentally believe in it. So first own it. Second is trial balloons. Don't measure it to death and then socialize. Like this is Sun Tzu art of war. Don't, don't never go into a battle, or I'm sorry, to a meeting, Freudian slip, um, where you're presenting creative that no one's seen before. Hmm. Forget that. You should be having one-on-one, hand-to-hand agreement all the way through so that when people get to the final creative meeting, it's, it's done. It's over. Yeah. There shouldn't be surprises. So the best way to, you know, to, to ensure that risk is happening is to remove surprises along the process of people saying yes. You know, we did that recently. We had this giant banner at NRF, which is the National Retail Federation um, trade show, that finally came back in January. Like, you know, I think we spent a lot of money there, mm-hmm. put a lot of effort into it, and we had this giant banner that said that had a giant red pill and a giant blue pill. Like most of the banners at NRF are just like. Crap brochures that like it looked like a page is taken out of a brochure. And we thought, you know what, let's treat it like outdoor advertising. Let's make it that something that someone would want to watch.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it was very un-retail technology sort of advertising. I'll just call it advertising. It was just a banner. So, you know, you know the red pill, the blue pill, obviously, you know, the, um, the red pill is, is new store, right? And the blue pill is retail as usual. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but if you want to take the red pill, you come to our booth, right? It was wildly successful. I just, we just went hand to hand. It was hand to hand comment all the way. You know, we showed a couple of people in the sales team. We showed people in professional services. And, you know, I shared the joke with, um, you know, in fact, I did it as a joke with Stefan Chembach, our CEO. I'm like, you know, it's kind of Stefan, you know, we're kind of like the red pill from the Matrix. He goes, yeah. And I'm like, that'd be an awesome, an awesome ad. Oh, yeah, it'd be so funny. Like, let me think about it. Little did he know I already had like a (laughs) total. (laughs) <laughs> totally that, but yeah, I, 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 I'm I'm just trusting. By the way, he's never going to hear this. like my <laughs> technique is done. But yeah, so don't no surprises. Make sure the battle's won before it's ever fought, mm-hmm. and, and that's the best way to take risks.
0: I love that idea of that booth, and it's cool because obviously the Matrix is so popular that like it's so eye catching. The red and the blue pill, and it's kind of had a resurgence in in culture. They just hear in like the red pill uh, and blue pill analogy. So I think that's genius. So hats off to you guys for for getting that one done.
1: Yeah, I think the I think the the only risk that I was kind of willing to own was would Warner Brothers get pissed and do a cease and desist. Yeah. So there's other kinds of risks too that you got to own. Uh, we thought that we could probably fling over the tree line a little bit. Before. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and and we did. I'll send you some of the red jelly beans we had that were pretty tasty. <laughs>
0: awesome, man. Um, so, is your thought process, and maybe to an extent, and maybe water this down a little bit, to like scare the sales team into thinking, oh my gosh, what is Phil doing now?
1: You know, I, I think it's, it behooves marketers to get a reputation among their sales team that, um, not that they're out of control, but maybe a little bit like on the edge. Okay. You're going to have a love, hate relationship with them. You should not have a love, hate relationship with the sales team. That should be joint to the So, but those working for, for her, um, you should keep missing a little bit, but, you know, because the long run view of that is our marketing team is on the cutting edge. they, they, they You know, the, the last thing everyone really wants is an entirely stable, sedate. About. They may, think they want that. They don't really want that. They want one who is pushing the envelope. So do I want to scare the team? I'm like, I would not say scare. I want them to, you know, to trust the fact that, I know what I'm doing. I'll bathe them in all the kind of support they need, but I don't mind them thinking a little bit of like, what's he doing on his LinkedIn? Oh, you know, like, so yeah. a little bit of edge is good. A little bit of edge mm-hmm.
0: is good. No, Salespeople I, I don't like being scared, by the way. They, they, that's, <laughs> just not,
1: that's not really what you want.
0: Um, so one, another thing that you brought up when we were chatting last time, when it comes to marketers looking for a new organization, this was really important. Um, we should always be looking for organizations that say, what marketing? Instead of why marketing, can you explain why that's critical for marketers?
1: Absolutely. So, the average lifespan of a CMO or a marketing person is what four years? Um,
0: maybe so even less. Gonna, gonna,
1: maybe even less. After this, after this interview, I'm sure it's going to be far less than that for me. Um, <laughs> so, so, there's, so you're looking for new jobs, right? You're gonna, you're, you're, and this, right now, the market's great if you're in marketing. There's two types of organizations you're going to run into. Right. The first one is going to be around. Okay, tell us the kinds of things you might want to do for our company. You know, the other kind is, and you'll get it. You'll know it in the interview. It's often they've never had a CMO, they've never had a VP of marketing, and the conversation is often, "Tell us why you think we need to have marketing. Can't we just do it with our reputation that we've already developed and the sales team?" And I hate to say it, but those are often companies that are, are that have a CRO in the mm-hmm. role, um, you know, because that's sort of a battle. We can talk at some length about why I think the CRO, you know, rose as a title, but that to me is a, is a leading indicator, that that may be what it's like. You just, if you not want to spend time validating your discipline, forget it. If you want, it may be, if you do great out there, you know, be the beachhead, you know, die on the, on the beach of, of you know, why marketing in the first place that's not, I don't want to spend my time doing it. So, you know, when I joined um, Newstore, the CEO for the first time, and, you know, I said, look, there's so many guys in, in, in retail software, like, why do you want to come to me? And he said, no, I just want someone who supports brands, mm-hmm. and understands brands. I knew at that point, this was not about like, why marketing was what kind of marketing. You know, I say the other cor- the corollary of this, I don't regret it. Don't work for a CEO who is a former CMO, All right? Mm. Because while you want your CMO to appreciate marketing, every CEO is listening to this right now, he knows this he or she knows this one truth. CMOs are not like the mafia, we only kill our own. And so there is we, you know, it, it, if you're working for former CMO, you will always be under the scrutiny of like, mm-hmm. you know, cause then they take the, um, they go from the, you know, what kind of marketing to why this little thing? And I would have done it better. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, avoid that as well.
0: Yeah. No, that's a really interesting point that I've actually never heard. Um, and it makes total sense because I don't know if like the more I think about it, it, it will be scrutinized in a different way. Yes, they get marketing, but they'll look at it like, man, I probably could have done that better. Why am I, why am I the CEO hour, And they're going to probably feel more attached to marketing and doing it their way than maybe what you're used to doing
1: okay i'm gonna i'm gonna reveal a secret and and we may speculated to edit it but so i was approached by the folks at drift mm-hmm. at one point to work for david cancel i think david cancels a genius okay mm-hmm. and well i mean the real reason it didn't go forward is i think i accidentally missed the interview but i do remember thinking <laughs> really it's really terrible i do remember thinking do I really want to work for him? Like mm-hmm. is it is, is as brilliant as I think he is, I think that would be a tough place. Mm-hmm. Maybe a more confident, experienced marketer than me might be able to handle, handle it. But I remember like really feeling that. Is that a place I want to be? You know, forget that like I think Dave, Dave Gerhardt did great and all that. Mm-hmm. It it worried me. But I think he's less upset about that than me just blowing him off for the so, <laughs> interview.
0: <laughs> that's funny, it's man. Sad. No, I mean that's I. Thinking about it, I wouldn't have thought about it that way, but actually seeing like, oh yeah, I mean, he does have a marketing mind. And even like you're saying, the previous CMOs um, turned CEOs, it can be probably tougher than people are realizing. So I think that's a good little nugget for people listening to this.
1: That's a tough job
0: already. Why make it harder? (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. Well, awesome, man. Um, We have some closing questions here. So I'll fire them off. Um, The first one is, you know, as a CMO, you've probably been on a bunch of podcasts before you hop on a podcast, what's the question in the back of your mind? that You're just like, man, I wish they would just ask me this on this episode. Uh, that's a
1: great question. So I think right now, you know, well, I think the question I always want to get asked is, would you be willing to take the reins of, of CMO at Peloton? And the answer is yes. Um, but I, I'm underqualified. And I think it's because I'm addicted to the thing. And I just like watching them right now. And I'm just cringing in a million ways. Hmm. Um, but I think this is going to be, it may sound like a pat question, which is, um, what is, how do we stay happy at work? Like, I mean, I've been in, I've had a career of almost 30 years now, you know, probably longer. I think of my first job, I was 12. And I would say the earlier part of my career, I was not happy in what I did. I had, I just, it just wasn't. I was doing, ironically, I was doing a lot of the same stuff. And I think the fundamental reason I wasn't is that I was not being me at work. And I know it sounds silly, but, you know, in your 20s, 20, and in between your 20s and 30s, you're trying to figure out who that person is, you know, who's their, who's work fill, mm-hmm. you know, and you're convincing yourself, you need to be, you know, you're watching, you know, now it's social media, but you know, you're watching the news and you're watching media and you're like, oh, that's how, that's the business person I want to be. If you look at the most successful business people out there, you know, whether it was, you know, you know, rest in peace, Tony Shea or, or, or Richard Branson or, or Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, they are exactly who they are. Mm-hmm. They, they brought them whole self, their whole selves into it. And so my greatest advice is be you at work. And I don't mean you don't have to be you in shorts and thongs and and like that. But be you. Don't try to be someone else at work. Okay. And, you know, that, that, that role is already taken. If you spend your career bringing yourself vulnerably and wholly into a, into a position over the course of your career, you're going to be far happier. And then, you know, because then you'll find the right f- fit. If you're faking it every single day at work, how miserable is that? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would say that there are probably people who are maybe even watching the, and watching and listening to this are like, "That Phil is he? He's not that mature. Like, shouldn't he be more mature for his age?" I'm like, "That's me." This is I, Phil, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was an emotional stunting at around twelve. Okay, I, I, I live with it, but that's what I want to bring to work. Mm-hmm. I just I wish more people did that, you know. And maybe this the great resignation and the great reset. I think people are kind of catching up with that Mm -hmm. because you have a window every day into who they are. I'm sitting in my youngest son's loft, which looks like I'm sitting in a box, right? Well, I do all my out of the box thinking, but I'm sitting in a box. It's his room. Like, and he's got ridiculous toys there. I'm hoping there's like not a vape pen there, but you see see who I am and who I, you know, who's in my world, but Mm -hmm. bring that all the way, you know, and you'll be happier at work and you'll do better at work. And if you find a place that doesn't like who you are, we have choices.
0: Yeah, we have you absolutely do. I think that those are yeah. some wise words for sure. Um, one last thing. One thing we sure. like to do on the podcast is basically flip roles. So if you've listened, you probably know this is coming. If not, that's cool too. But okay. if there's any questions you want to shoot my way, uh, you get to be the podcast host here for a few minutes. So sure, sure. Fire your way.
1: So on a on a on a scale from one to ten, um, how much more did you like me than the other? podcast participants you have. i like you
0: a lot i like okay, people yeah. that are fun and uh not rigid and are themselves so that your last point there brings you to a 10 awesome
1: okay so then here's a real question so what is the you may not like to answer this but what is the biggest piece of bullshit you think you heard on one of these podcasts from one of my marketing colleagues <sighs> or maybe I'll, I'll get you out of this what were you most skeptical about just x mm. out the
0: word bullshit I know there's something and I can't remember exactly what it was. It was something to do with marketing and sales alignment. And it was some cliche thing about what sales should be owning. And I was like, I, I really can't remember what it was, but I remember the face of the person. I'm not obviously going to call them out, no. but I remember thinking like, <laughs> uh, I don't know if I agree with that. And then um, another one, I wouldn't say this was like straight BS, but it was kind of yeah. fun. I went on a podcast with uh, a friend of mine. His name is Dan Sanchez. And because uh, I had posted something on LinkedIn that we both disagreed on. So he's like, hey, let's have like a friendly little feud here. The feud was basically like what I believe branding is versus like his definition of branding. And today we still disagree on like views, but that was kind of fun to go on. I think it is a podcast episode. I think we repurposed it, but um, I wouldn't say it was like straight BS, but that's what comes to mind of like something we decided. What's your on.
1: definition of branding?
0: So my definition of branding is probably not what people think, but it is the visual aspects of your company. And then I believe that brand is the emotional aspects of your company. And I had like a list, I made like a little graphic so like I think that branding would be uh, your website, your logo, the colors, uh, you know things that tie and visually connect to you. and then your right. brand, is like the emotional connection you have with your buyers your community um what people think of you when they hear your name and that's how i differentiated um that was my argument but uh people everyone looks at it differently
1: my god that is so wrong i can't believe you said that No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think that's i think that's right i think the brand is what's sitting in people's heads yeah the branding the branding is the are all the trappings that get you to remind it mm-hmm. remind people of it and maybe if you're lucky reinforce it
0: yeah All right. Okay. Well, so we're aligned on that. So maybe Dan, if you're listening to this, we have, might have to do like a (laughs) 2.0, but that's good. But Phil, thanks so much, man. This was a lot of fun having you on the show. Um, Appreciate you being a good sport, having some fun. Uh, Like I said, you're, you're a 10 in my book today. So this is, this has been a lot of fun. All right, Sam. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it.